This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. <laughs> I got that on the first try. Okay. Somebody is moving on up in the world. I'm getting back into the hang of this. It just took me a, a couple weeks. Uh, so fun fact, I sit down to record my podcast probably once a week. And at that time, everybody in the universe is determined to be the loudest that they've ever been in their entire lives. So I live out in the country, literally the middle of nowhere. My nearest neighbor is probably like a 10 minute walk away. So I have, I have no neighbors, mostly. And it's just like, even the nature is loud. Why? What is happening? So if you hear some banging around, of course, my dog is downstairs and has the loudest, most obnoxious toy he could possibly have. So that's that. And that's just the way it's going to be. Hi, welcome to episode 56. I'm your host, Jana. Like always, there's only one of me and I'm always who I am. Uh, I'm recording this really late. Uh, Normally, I prefer to record on Wednesday night just to kind of have, you know, a day, just a buffer, a buffer of time. And it is Thursday. It is actually, I'm going to finish recording this and literally post it immediately after. Uh, And uh, I could blame it on a technical difficulty, and I'm not going to do that because the technical difficulty is just my own procrastination. And honestly, you can't even really call it procrastination because that's not fair to me. Uh, I started grad school again this week, and uh, not again, it's just the new semester kicked up on Tuesday. And I just, I don't know how to manage my time right now. Um, I do and I don't. Like, I understand managing time, but like, normally, like I said, I record on Wednesdays, and I very much have to be in class on Wednesdays because it's a class that doesn't make any sense to me at all, and I'm kind of panicking a little bit about that, but that's enough about that and about that section. It's just, I need to work on my time management, so this week was kind of rough. Um, it's all fine. It's totally fine. I I feel like I'm the, the meme of the dog in the burning room that's like, this is fine. That's kind of how my life just always feels now, and I, like, thrive in this environment. So I'm fine with it. It's okay. It, it could it could be so much worse. I think that's a satisfactory intro. <laughs> it's fast, short, sweet, and to the point. That's it. That's where my life's been. I started grad school. Everybody's loud. There you go. Okay. So this week, I was torn between several cases to talk about, as I usually am. I just have if you've been here for a while, you know that I have a big old list of things that I found on the internet that I thought were interesting and that someday would like to cover in a podcast or a YouTube video. So I, I have a master list of things. Um, if you have any suggestions, feel free to email them to me. Email them. Just Instagram message me because they'll get bumped to the top of the list if they're already on my list. Um, usually I just pick at random um, and or, you know, it's it just I there's no process. And my dog is crying. Sorry. There is no process to the method of my madness. And that's just how it is. But so this... <laughs> Hang on one second. Okay. I think he has been placated for the time being. So it's always hard to pick one case because I think they all deserve coverage. And they all deserve to be talked about. And I'm only... I'm just a little me. I'm just one person. I, I don't have a team of researchers. I don't have a team of... <laughs> Hang on again one more time. 
he's mad because I'm up here and he's down there and he's not allowed up here. So hopefully, once again, I guess we'll see. If he, we're just going to continue. We're just going to power through this, even if he's crying. So eventually he'll give up. So like I was saying, I'm just one person. I, I don't have a team of researchers. I don't have anybody who helps me do any of this. So I, I am literally just a one-man show and it's okay. It's just, this is the life I've chosen for myself. And there's only so many hours in a day. And I don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm justifying this. It just kind of is what it is. But so, um, one of the cases, I was between a couple specifically, and one of the deciding factors for this case is the fact that I live in Ohio. If you're new here, hi, I'm from Ohio. Uh, the memes are funny, but it's not that bad here. I enjoy it, but also I've never lived anywhere else so I literally have nothing to compare it to. Um, I love Cleveland because I have to. I've lived within like the vicinity of it and even in like Cleveland proper. I, I owned a house in Cleveland. I don't anymore. Um, I, I've lived in the vicinity of Cleveland my entire life. And so I'm a Cleveland sports fan. I'm a tried and true Ohio everything fan. But I will admit that my favorite city that I've ever been to so far is Pittsburgh. And that hurts my soul to say it because if you are in any type of fan of sports, you know that Cleveland and Pittsburgh technically hate each other. Um, this is still the case. I don't like any Pittsburgh sports teams, except for the Pens. They're okay, but that's only because uh, Cleveland doesn't have a hockey team. Well, we do, but it doesn't count. Anywho, that was a weird sidebar. Uh, so I have on my, my list of cases, and I noticed that one, which is a pretty just fascinating mystery to me, takes place at the Ohio State University, which, once again, because I'm from Ohio, it's just a default that you're an Ohio State fan. But you come out the womb with a little Ohio State flag in your tiny little baby hands. And you also have a major affinity for corn and corn-based byproducts, which is just, that's just Ohio. That's what it is. I can't explain that. Um, and actually, so it gets weird because in my tertiary dig of this case, I've actually been on the street where this disappearance and mystery occurs. Um, my friend went to Ohio State for a minute. Uh, she lived actually on, on one of the streets that we talk about. And it's a long street, but I mean, still the fact that I've been there. So I I found myself continually, continually, wow, continually um, six degrees of Kevin Baconing myself to this case. So I was sold. Um, I need to know more, basically, is where this started because it's all fascinating. It didn't happen that long ago and it happened. I mean, Columbus isn't my backyard, but it's it's pretty close. Uh, so choosing today's topic followed an incredibly natural progression. So today, if you didn't know from the Instagram post, which if you don't follow me on Instagram, you should, um, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of Brian Schaefer, which is another degree of bacon. If you don't get the joke, that's my last name too. <laughs> Spelled differently, but that's also my last name. Okay. On February 11th, 1979, Randy and Renee Schaefer welcomed tiny baby Brian into the world. Uh, later, they would have another boy named Derek. Um, and I've seen things that say the family lived in Pickerington, Ohio, which is a suburb of, of Columbus. But it looks like they were technically born and lived in Baltimore, Ohio, which is a little bit further east. I don't know um, what the nuance between the two is or why some say Baltimore or some say Pickerington. Um, it's a suburb of Columbus to the east of Columbus. That's really all you need to know. Um, Pickerington itself is a pretty large city. It's the second largest in the country behind Lancaster, Ohio, in country, county behind Lancaster, Ohio. And it has a historic shopping center as well as the Motorcycle Hall of Fame. Uh, from everything I can tell, that area seems like a really nice place to live and a cool place to grow up. 
Um, there's also several famous NFL players and a few fam- famous basketball players that are from Pickerington, including somebody on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Brian graduated from high school in 1997, but I'm not sure from which high school exactly. It just says Pickerington. There are two high schools in Pickerington. I don't know if Baltimore has a high school, um, but that's not a super important detail in the grand scheme of things. It just bothered me that I couldn't figure it out. So there you go. Uh, While in high school, Brian was known for being athletic, joining sports like basketball, soccer, and tennis. And while he wasn't at the top of his class or anything, he was known for being really competitive and headstrong. So basically, if he put his mind to something, he was going to do it. I found an incredible Reddit post that I'll link when I put the script on the website, which, yes, once again, I'm going to be doing a massive overhaul of the website at some point in time. Um, But the Reddit user named TopGolfUFO, her real name is Bethany, I saw in a different post. but So she put together an incredible in-depth summarization of Brian Schaefer's case, which I'm going to be getting some of the chunks of this information from. I, I am summarizing her massive summarization, and I also found some other articles that I kind of cut and pieced into this together. So um, this is a little piece of information that I thought was just interesting. Brian's cousin Dan went on a podcast in 2018 um, to help get those podcasters a little bit more information on the case and bring more light to the situation. So it was called The Comeback Pod, hosted by Kelly Bruce and Nick West. Um, I have not gotten a chance to listen to this episode or their podcast, but I am going to check it out after this is done. Uh, There's one story I found pretty interesting about Brian's character in high school. Apparently, Brian was the captain of his tennis team, and the finals were coming up, and the coach had told Brian that he needed to cut his hair. And instead of cutting his hair, Brian quit the team. (laughs) So I, I think that's kind of funny, actually. I that's not something I would do because I don't have the stones to do it, but I do find people who do that really fascinating, and I like the the moxie behind the decision. And Top Golf UFO or Bethany noticed something that I noticed. I wow, that I noticed too is that some of Dan's memories and memories of Brian conflict with what his other family is saying. And I think it could be one of two things: either Dan and Brian had a different relationship than the type of relationship he had with the rest of his family. Like, my cousin and I are super close in age, and we were raised more like sisters than cousins, and I'm sure she would remember me a little differently than, say, like, my dad would, because she knows all the stories about me growing up and me being in high school versus, like, I was a good kid in high school. I never got up to anything, like, crazy, but also, like, my cousin and I TP'd a house once, but I don't think my dad knows about that. So, I mean, it's like, they're just different family dynamics, Um, or it could be something along the lines of not wanting to speak ill of the missing like, you know, the, they lit up a room, they were perfect people comment. Um, everybody has some good and some bad and no one is perfect. It's all just a part of your life story and that all just kind of is what it is. Okay, also in high school, because we're still in high school time, uh, Brian played guitar for a band and was really passionate about music. He joked that he wanted to be a rock star and be at a huge famous band. Brian had a pretty serious girlfriend all through high school. They dated for eight years um, and they break up sometime when Brian is in college, which... He's not in college yet in our story, but just this this seems like a nice little buttoned-up place to just pop it. So back to it. Brian graduates high school in 1997. He takes a gap year before going to college. Uh, Rumor has it that he became a bit of a partier, but that's not super uncommon or odd. Honestly, I feel like most teenagers, not me, but most teenagers, and that's not even a cover story. I was not fun between, I wasn't fun in high school, and it wasn't fun in the time between high school and college either, um, but I was just really lame. Everybody else was fun and cool. I just personally wasn't, so that's not uncommon. Uh, 
Upon deciding to go to college, he attends, of course, the Ohio State University, as you do. I applied there, but it was too far away. Um, So Brian only had one criminal offense ever in his whole life, uh, which was an OVI on St. Patrick's Day in 1999, which is funny. He was only 20 years old, so (laughs) I don't know how he didn't get an underage, but he got an OVI. Um, He was pulled over at 9 a.m. in Baltimore, Ohio, which either he lived or he didn't. I'm, the sources are different because it's east of Pickerington by a little bit. This little guy will not stop. Hang on one more second. I opened the door so the screen door is open and it's either going to make things better or worse. I don't, too early to tell. Okay, so he got an OVI on St. Patrick's Day in 1999, pulled over at 9 a.m., which I mean, it is St. Patrick's Day, so fine. He paid almost $500 in fines and spent three days in jail, but ultimately learned a lesson because after this, Dan says that he chilled out on the partying and focused more on his schoolwork. So Brian graduated from college in 2003 with a BS in microbiology and a minor in genetics, which I find very impressive. Um, I have a BS in general biology and a BS in general chemistry, and there's only one class I almost didn't pass, Actually, that's a lie. There's two classes I almost didn't pass. Um, Microbiology was one of them. And uh, PCHEM kicked my ass. Uh, Now, it could have been the teachers or maybe it was just my brain, but microbiology is no joke. And I'm I'm really promising you I'm not exaggerating when I said I almost didn't pass. Um, The story D's get degrees is mostly true. Not a BW. You You can only get one D and then they expel you from the program. So, oh. Somebody has arrived to my house. Um, But yeah, so D's don't get degrees. It's not a real thing. Um, After graduating with his undergrad, Brian takes a trip to Puerto Rico. He'd been there before, and it seems like he liked to travel there. Um, Apparently, he just kind of up and left and didn't really tell anybody he was going there. That's a common trend. Uh, And in 2004, he's accepted into OSU's med school program, and there he meets a girl named Alexis Wagoner, and they started dating. So from the several accounts that I've read, it seems like med school was just something Brian chose to do but wasn't necessarily his passion, which is common for adults. Um, A MySpace post from Brian says, "Um, I really love music and this whole doctor thing is really just a job, only temporary, until I get my band together and put out a record. I want to own an island someday or at least a beach so I can listen to Buffett all day and drink margaritas with my senorita. And that is the most relatable statement I've ever said in my whole life. Like, I don't want to start a band. I'd rather just, like, have a true crime podcast <laughs> and own a beach. Um, we're working on that. I would also just like to go and be on a beach drinking a margarita. I don't even have to own the beach or own the island. I just <laughs> I just really want to drink a margarita and hang out in the sun. Um, he said that the one person he would like to meet in his life would be Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, and he had a tattoo of the stick man from Pearl Jam tattooed on his um, right bicep. It's the only tattoo he has. In 2005, Brian's mother, Renee, is diagnosed with cancer. I've read in a few places it was breast cancer, but I uh, also think she ultimately passed on March 6, 2006, from mild dysplastic syndrome, a group of cancers that affects blood because the immature blood cells that are in the bone marrow never mature into healthy blood cells, so they they can never be healthy blood cells. Uh, MDS can be caused from exposure to chemotherapy, so it's possible that the treatment of her breast cancer led to the new health development. Uh, She was only 51 years old when she died. 
An interesting thing to note that I read in Top Golf UFO's Reddit post is that Brian was MIA the day of his mother's funeral. Brian's dad, Randy, was playing the saxophone to kill time, and eventually, an hour after the funeral was supposed to start, Brian and his serious girlfriend, Alexis, walk in. Brian said he'd overslept. Apparently after this, he told Alexis to move on and find someone who would make her happy because he was in a dark place after losing his mother. Now, I know that grief is a really weird thing. Um, After losing Penny, and I know she was a dog, and you can say it isn't like losing a parent, and I know that, I really do, but Penny was like a child to me, and losing her super unexpectedly was devastating. Your brain does weird stuff after traumatic loss like that, so I don't think I personally put too much weight on the situation or those comments, but that's just me. Um... I don't think Brian was acting weird. Like I said, I think being under that type of grief and being in that type of situation is just, you don't know how you're going to react to that until you're in that situation. So I don't think it's fair to put any judgment on him saying those things. On St. Patrick's Day, 11 days after the death of his mother, Brian goes out with his best friend, Clint Florence, and their mutual friend, Meredith Reed. Clint and Brian are close. They'd been roommates for a while and friends for a long time, although they weren't roommates at the time of this, but they had been roommates in the past. They were still friends. Um, they go out, and from records, the night ended pretty badly. Um, I'm assuming it's a combination of the grief and liquor, but like I said, that's an assumption. Um, I can just only imagine being in that type of situation and then pouring liquor on top of it probably didn't end up well. Um, they ended up not speaking for a few weeks. On March 28th, during finals week, Brian jokingly asked Alexis to skip class the next day so they can run off and get married. On March 31st, it's the first day of OSU spring break. Uh, it's the Friday after the, the 28th. The previous Christmas, Renee had bought Brian and Alexis a trip to Miami for spring break, and it suspected the upcoming trip was so that Brian could propose um, as the tropics were her favorite, and it was a meaningful trip, and he had been noted talking about jewelers and talking about the whole thing. So it's suspected by several people that he had planned on proposing to Alexis on their Miami trip. That day, too, um... Oh, sorry. Their flight was supposed to leave on April 3rd. Alexis headed back to Toledo to visit her family before the trip, and that day, too, Clint posted on Brian's MySpace profile showing that they had presumably made up and they were friends again. Um, That night, so that Friday night, the 31st, Brian and his father, Randy, get dinner to celebrate the completion of midterms. Um, Randy mentions that Brian seemed tired, but after pulling several all-nighters for finals, it makes sense and wasn't completely abnormal. Randy told people that he thought it was a bad idea for Brian to go out that night since he was so tired, but he kept those thoughts to himself until after the fact. And then here is where the evening starts to turn. At 6.21 p.m., Brian messages Alexis on MySpace to express how excited he is to go to Miami with her in just a few days. Derek, his brother, reaches out to Brian to try to get him to go to a comedy show, but he already has plans with Clint for the, rest of, or for the first day of spring break. And they promised to try and meet up at some point during the evening. At around 9.15, 9.30, Clint picks Brian up at his apartment. They go to the Ugly Tuna Saluna, a new bar near the OSU campus. Um, they have several shots of liquor, and Alexis calls Brian around 10 p.m. to check in. He tells her he's having a guy's night, and once again, that he looks forward to their trip to Miami. He's excited to see her when she gets back into town. Clint and Brian make their way to the short north and stop at Brothers Bar and eventually Red Star, where Meredith joins them um, sometime after midnight. Sometime during the bar hopping, Derek and Brian communicate with one another, saying the plants intersect are null, and Derek was super tired and wanted to go to sleep anyways. 
For some reason, the group goes back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna. Uh, security cameras pick them up going back into the bar, um, and there's only one public way into the building, uh, which is through it's through the gateway building. There's the whole building. It has a few restaurants and the movie theater. It seems kind of like a mall, I would suspect. Um, and then you have to take an escalator up to the second story where the Ugly Tuna was located. There's speculation of a separate entrance in the other content I've consumed. So I looked into it further and found a comment from another Reddit user which said, I used to work at the Ugly Tuna from 2007 to 2009, and I can tell you with the utmost certainty that there is no employee entrance or service entrance. When we came into work, we would walk through the same main entrance, the only entrance as the customers. When the trash was taken out, we would roll it out the main entrance doors to an elevator and take it down to the hallway that led to the dumpsters. So into the actual bar itself, there was only one entrance in. Like You could only get in through the gateway building, and that was it. Um, The gateway building itself obviously had fire entrances, trash entrances, you know, those types of things. But to actually get into the bar itself, there's only one entrance. So they're at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, and they they get there around 1.15 a.m. They, at some point during the evening, Clint runs into, he was a TA at the time, and he runs into two girls that he knew, at least the one girl. He was a TA, and this girl named Amber was one of his students. And apparently he either did or didn't know, I'm not sure, but she had a friend with her named Brighton. Brian and Clint talk to Amber and Brighton outside the Ugly Tuna for a little bit. It's seen on camera. Um, it seems like it was a third and fourth wheel situation where because Amber and Clint were talking to one another, Brighton and Brian just kind of chatted it up because they were just kind of awkwardly standing there as part of the thing. Um, Brighton went on the, the, the Comeback podcast in 2018, and she mentions that she and Amber had gone to the Ugly Tuna Saluna around 115. So at that time, I want to say that Clint, Brian, and Meredith were already there. Amber and Clint had talked. So Brighton and Brian talked, like I said. She said he seemed buzzed but not drunk, and she said that he was super flirtatious with her, and at some point, Clint and Brian had an argument, but she wasn't sure what it was about. Although people speculate that because he was being flirtatious, um, Clint had said something and stuck up because he knew on some level that Brian was going to propose to Alexis, is, is the basic running theory on that. Um, at 1.57, when Brian is last seen on camera... He stepped into a small alcove with Brighton and talked to her for probably two to three more minutes. They were just off camera outside the bar entrance, and there's a beige door that led to a construction site. Brighton put her number in Brian's phone and then went into the Ugly Tuna to use the restroom. When she came back out moments later, she and Amber had lost track of Brian. They thought he went back into the bar, but Brighton couldn't remember if she'd seen him go back in. Clinton Meredith said he went back into the bar, but nobody else could corroborate that memory. So at 1.57, he's outside the Ugly Tuna Saluna talking with Brighton. Literally a minute later, gone. Just completely gone. He has disappeared. Brian was notorious for walking away and wandering away from the group, so Clint said he wasn't worried. He thought that Brian had just had enough and gone back to his apartment, and because I guess that was not abnormal for him. Closing time, 2 a.m., came and Clint and Meredith left the Ugly Tuna uh, cell records show that Meredith called Brian's phone at 2.01 a.m., but it went straight to voice, voicemail. She left a message, and the pair is seen leaving the Gateway parking garage at 2.09 a.m. on camera. They were house-sitting for a professor and went to go back there, but assumed Brian would find his way home if he wasn't already there. 
What's weird to me is that Brian obviously had his phone on from like 157 to 159 because he he gets Brighton's cell phone number. He has his cell phone and it's turned on. But when Meredith calls at 201, it goes straight to voicemail. Was her call ignored or was his cell phone turned off? Rumor was that Brian had been planning a shindig as an apartment for that night, which after 2 a.m. seems really late to a party. Um, mind you, Brian is 27. My stamina for staying up and drinking late severely decreased after 25. Um, also, he had recently been pulling all-nighters studying for finals or midterms, so it's just crazy to me, in my opinion, that he would keep the party going that late on his first opportunity to sleep, but I guess that's just the old lady in me speaking. I'm unsure of the exact distance, but um, after being on OSU's campus and the area around it, I would assume that the distance from the ugly tuna saluna to Brian's apartment could be walkable. Um, an article said that it was six blocks away, but I'm from the country, so that means nothing to me. <laughs> Uh, Clint and Meredith never mentioned this after party, but I guess in another interview, a friend of Brian said that there was a plan to go to, go to his apartment, but he never followed through with it. Randy, as a reminder, Brian's father, said that he thought Brian was going to talk to the band, um, which it took me a second to clarify, but there was a band called Rock House that had been playing in the area that night. I think they were playing at Gateway, at the Gateway area. I'm not entirely sure, though. That That has never been clarified. Um, it was suspected with Brian's love for music, and um, he would talk about joining or reviving a band, and maybe he had gone off to talk to them. That was the speculation. So the next morning, Alexis calls Brian's phone, and it goes straight to voicemail. Clint calls around 11 a.m. and had the same scenario. He leaves a voicemail that says, hey, lost you last night, and the friends that had been invited to the apartment hadn't heard from him either, and I would figure that they probably assumed he fell asleep. So Brian was supposed to go meet his father later that day, but he never shows up. So this is all technically April 1st, 2006, for reference. Um, this started on March 31st in the evening, and now we've gone all day on Saturday, April 1st, with no sign from Brian. Alexis tries to call Brian again on April 2nd, but his phone was still off and his calls were going directly to voicemail. She said in an interview later that this is when she started to worry, but was telling herself that she was being ridiculous. She got back from Columbus and visited his apartment. His car was still in the driveway. His glasses were on the bedside table. Uh, and she'd stayed the night. I'm assuming that was part of the plan because, remember, they had a flight to catch in the morning, one that Brian spent a lot of time planning and multiple times said he was super excited for, the flight where, we suspect, he was going to make his way to Miami and propose. But the flight left, and there was still no sign of Brian. At this point, Alexis and Randy called the police. Everything was searched. Brian's car, Clint's car, the professor's car, and all the houses were searched, but there was no sign of Brian. He was gone. Search dogs were brought in to try and track Brian's scent around the Ugly Tuna and in the nearby construction site. Um, it had rained a few days before the search, I'm assuming that weekend, so the search dogs did, um, they seemed interested in the construction site and an alleyway leading up from the Ugly Tuna to a nearby Wendy's, but it's possible they were just confused by the displacion, displacion, displacement of the scent. Randy put up flyers, and 50 uh, Columbus Police Department officers canvassed nearby houses going door-to-door -door asking if anybody had seen them. They checked through all the vacant and abandoned air buildings in the area, hospitals and homeless shelters, and they found nothing. Uh, they also started the meticulous process of searching over the security footage from both inside the gateway and all the neighboring businesses. The Olentangy River was searched high and low, assuming that if Brian's body was in there, it would be located. It wasn't. This is where Randy, who, as a reminder, lost his wife to cancer three weeks prior, and now his eldest son has gone missing, vanished into thin air, meets Don Corbett. 
and I, I kind of gloss over Don Corbett just a little bit, um, but he, he's been integral into the case, and he is a retired police officer who was working at a bank that Randy's electrical company serviced. A mutual friend mentioned to Randy that he knew a retired detective who might be able to help, and that was um, Don Corbett. He, which I thought found this piece interesting, he agreed to work for free for Randy, um, which is beautiful. But he was somewhat appalled that Randy had been paying some of the psychics who'd been harassing him. And I, that just, that enrages me. I can't even imagine what Randy was going through to have two massive tragedies happen so close to one another. And Don Corbett is a saint. Like, first of all, psychics, the desperation to get answers and like to have these schmucks taking his money, they're feeding off the damage. That's just, he's vulnerable. My relationship with the metaphysical is very interesting. Um, like, I love zodiac signs, and I think looking into that kind of thing is fun. It, it's a silly, like, I don't actually probably believe any of it, but it's, it's, a, it's fun, something to do. And at the end of the day, this is serious. A man's son is missing. If you're really a psychic and you really want to help and you really have that, that cosmic ability, I feel like you'd offer to do it for free. If you could help this man find his son, this man who's clearly in pain, help him find his son, I would do it for free if I could. You wouldn't charge a man an arm and a leg for your visions if they're real when he's already had enough. Like he's already been through the ringer. He's already lost his wife. His son is missing. And you're going to charge this man money and you're going to harass him to get money from him? That's just, those people are fucked. And that's just so wrong and icky. You're you're manipulating somebody who is vulnerable and can't really defend themselves, and the fact that you're trying to profit off of it is just absolutely disgusting. These people. So in another interview, it was brought up that in the past, Brian had just up and left his world to go to Puerto Rico for a week. We've already talked about that. Um, he didn't tell anyone he was going. He just kind of left. But during that time, he called his family. They knew where he was. Um, this is different. Like, he vanished, yes, up and left, but he's now he's not answering his phone, he's not contacting anybody, and he, yeah, he's not reachable at all. And police mentioned that, yes, from their observations, that Brian Schaefer would sometimes leave his friends at bars, and he had up and left to go to Puerto Rico. He always let people know where he was, and this time he wasn't, which was different. And I think after the initial panic period, you know, he's been gone for a couple days now. It's not like he disappeared for maybe an afternoon and never reached out to anybody. He's been gone for a couple days and still has not reached out to people, which started kind of raising red flags on the situation. Uh, South Campus, where all this kind of happened, was a little dodgy at the time and definitely not the best neighborhood to be in. Um, I guess that was kind of what Gateway was trying to do, was put a higher-end establishment in there to obviously gentrify the area and try to get crime out. Uh, Crime had been high since you know, and hence the security cameras on that. Since Columbus, and I didn't know this, this was something I learned today, uh, Columbus has the most security cameras of any city in Ohio, uh, more than Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Toledo combined, actually. Officers looked at the footage of other bars to see if cameras could be explained how how Schaefer had left the ugly tuna saluna, and none of those cameras provided anything. So this is a heavily cameraed area, and they're everywhere, but they're all usually panning, and it's possible that his exit occurred when one of the cameras weren't panning on the area he was in, but he's not picked up on any cameras. But we also know he didn't leave through the Ugly Tuna Saluna. He had to leave through the gateway area because there's no exit out of the bar. There's no, you know, you cannot get out of that bar without going out the, the there's no entrance. 
Uh, police even followed up with the band Rock House just because there was, you know, a lead that he had probably talked to them or possibly talked to them, but they didn't recall talking to Brian at all. And it's also suspected that Brian could have left through the doors that he and Brighton were seen talking by around 1.57 a.m. But those doors, they were able to be open, but they were chained shut with a security guard nearby. And although at closing time, uh, with people moving around and leaving and a lot of action kind of going on, is it possible that the, that the security guard wasn't paying attention and missed it? Uh, was Brian able to squeeze through the chain door and make an exit? Like him exiting through these doors is the only way that you wouldn't see him go down the escalator that he came up on. Um, and why wouldn't he just walk out the regular entrance? That's such a weird thing. If I guess that's one of the main, un- that's like the biggest unanswered question of this is why didn't he just go down the escalator like everybody else? Why did he ditch his friends even though they exited the bar only three minutes after him? Um, there was also a fire exit, but from what I'm seeing, from what I have seen, um, and I don't know if it's related to this case or just something in general, but those aren't usually even armed. They have the alarm will sound sign on the door, but it's just so people don't use them. Um, it's mostly just to keep you and me, a mere pedestrian, from using the door. I don't think the alarm actually sounds. And it's also, uh, so it's likely that Brian could have exited through the fire door. Uh, but I had a camera, but the footage overrides over a certain amount of time, and it was useless in the investigation because any footage that would have had Brian on it was already overwritten by the time the cops were made aware of the situation. But if Brian uses that door, like using that door boasts the same questions. Why did he not just wait another two to three minutes and leave with his friends? So this is another excerpt from Bethany's Reddit post, because um, I thought this was interesting. John Hurst, who was the lead police detective on the case, basically. So John Hurst said he thinks the most likely option is that Brian, quote, got exited out, quote, of the construction area exit. This unusual phrasing used during the interview has been the source of much speculation on the Internet, leading many to wonder if foul play was involved. Though police dogs, cadaver dogs, and Randy's own personal dogs searched the construction area several times, many armchair detective Detectives theorized that he may have died in the construction area and his body was never found, either falling into cement or getting stuck in a wall. Hearst says that this was more like a finished basement that was being walled off for different businesses, so there wasn't any deep pits or freshly poured concrete areas to fall into. It was a challenging to walk through, but not deadly. Which, yeah, freshly concrete hardens so quickly. Um, I know that from experience. That sounds bad. <laughs> I work in the industry. Uh, but concrete, it hardens too quickly. It would be mostly set by the time, by that evening, by two in the morning. Yeah, it'd be set because it would have been done earlier in the day on Friday. So no, there's no way he would have fallen into a, a vat of concrete. It's not like quicksand. And there would have been, if it was finished, It yeah, they would have known if he, he wouldn't just be in a concrete in the basement of somebody's house they would have known because it would have had to have been like refinished after he fell into it and mussed up the, the surface and it would have been hard anyway so it wouldn't have happened just yeah <laughs> um and like I said earlier there were divided opinions about gateway at the time um just because it, it was becoming a better area but it wasn't crime free by any means uh the Grove City landfill was searched the day um so that I guess Monday it would have been uh because, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a landfill. I guess police had to narrow down the area where any dumpsters in the campus would have been taken just, uh, 
you know, just to figure out if he hadn't ended up in there. Um, and officers and search dogs, wow, <laughs> officers and search dogs found nothing. I'm getting ahead of myself. Of course, a ton of false sightings happened. Uh, fake Brian Schaefer's were seen in Michigan, Texas, and even internationally in Sweden or some rural island. But of course, none of them were him. Clint was obviously a suspect in the disappearance of Brian Schaefer. Their long-term friendship, their recent altercations, the fact that Brian was last seen with Clint and Meredith just before his di- disappearance was a little fishy. I hate that that just happened. Um, even if Clint had nothing to do with the disappearance, of course, he'd be someone the police would want to talk to. Clint lured up pretty quickly, which some see as suspicious, I don't know if I see it that way. Um, I kind of see it as being intelligent because guilty or not, getting a lawyer to help you guide through, like guide you through this process is probably a good idea, I would think. Um, but that's just my opinion. Um, it just, I feel like you got to kind of have somebody there that knows what you're doing, especially if you're not a criminal and you've never done it before. Like, I think even if I weren't guilty, I'd want a lawyer up just to be protected. Um, that's kind of their job. That's just my opinion on the matter, though. Uh, people will think it's suspicious, I personally don't. Uh, Police asked him to take a polygraph and he refused. Also, a lot of people find that suspicious, which I'm on the fence on. Polygraphs aren't always accurate. They're also not admissible evidence in court, though. So if you fail one, it's not like you fail a polygraph and they can convict you. That's definitely not the case. People need, by people, I mean police and detectives and the law, need a lot more evidence to convict you than just that. Uh, But something like a, you know, failed polygraph could get you a search warrant, but they already searched everything to my knowledge. Um, so I, I don't know what the risk of taking a polygraph was. Cause if you fail it, like I said, they can't use it against you in court necessarily. It just, it just is what it is. Um, suspicious, but not necessarily guilt inducing to me. I don't believe that he's guilty. Um, and at the time, like, you know, I, I, I understand uh, Clint's suspiciousness and wariness of taking a polygraph. I get that. I completely understand that. Um, it should also be noted that Meredith did take a polygraph and passed. Uh, family members and Alexis thought and probably still do that it's an odd and suspicious thing that Clint has never taken one. Fair enough. I also think it's odd and maybe a little bit suspicious, but I can see both sides of that. I can, I, I'll ride the fence on that one. One thing I personally noticed, too, is that, uh, well, I didn't notice this, rumors spread like wildfire, as they usually do, but I noticed um, somewhere, and I think it was on Reddit, too, that people said that Clint tried to barter with the police and ask for immunity if he gave up information. That is false. I saw somewhere that is untrue. It's something somebody made up. And, of course, people also turned to the lack of communication between Bryant and Clint as a red flag, but once again, grief is a weird thing, and... To remind the group again, Brian had literally just lost his mother, um, somebody he looked up to, his confidant, and she had just passed away pretty tragically. I just, I don't know. I Brian and Clint had a blow up, and they didn't talk for a while. That's, I don't know. Why would Brian openly hang out with Clint and Meredith if he, if he didn't want to? He's a 27-year-old man. He can do what he wants to do. He doesn't have to hang out with somebody if he doesn't want to friendships can have falling outs. They have getting back together. It's all part of being an adult in a complex relationship. I don't read into that too much. Also, I think getting into a small drunk spat at the bar is also nothing. Um, 
I suppose I can see that as a reason for not wanting to leave with his friends, but I think if the fight had been that big or that serious, it would have drawn more attention to it. Um, I certainly don't think that a, a bar spat talking to your friend for a couple days and they go missing, I don't think that means Clint killed Brian. That just seems ridiculous to me, and I think you're, I think if there were more evidence to back it up, I think police would have done more. Um, I think if there was more to believe there, and obviously police can pull phone records and police can pull, you know, GPS locations, even back in 2006. And I think if there was more evidence to get on Clint, they wouldn't need a polygraph test to get there. So I, I just think that's my own personal opinion. All I'm saying is if there was enough to get Clint, I think people would, they would have done it. You know, they would have investigated him harder. Rather than, like, hoping he would take a polygraph test and then he refusing to do it, I, I think. Like, if there was more to be there, they would have done more to get him. Um, but for a lot of people, though, Clint is the main suspect in this. Clint, everybody believes that Clint had something to do with it or he knows more than what he's, he's saying. But as a reminder, it's not, an Ill- it's not illegal for an adult to run away. They can do that. Um, <laughs> you can literally just pack up and go if you want to. There's nothing... Aside from, like, social obligations to keeping you where you're at, you can just get up and leave whenever you want to. You have full autonomy to do so. So that's that's an issue that's going to come up later. So a few months later, on May 11th, Brian's apartment's broken into, but it seems the whole ordeal is unrelated to the case. Uh, two other apartments in the complex had been robbed around the same time, and honestly, Brian's apartment probably looked mostly abandoned and was an easy target for a burglar, I would guess. So... Uh, there was a minute where people thought maybe the burglary burglary was related to the case. Um, it is now believed that it's probably not. Um, police, I'll give them credit. Police went down, I'm pretty sure, every outlet they could to figure this out. They even asked Alexis about the relationship, but that was a dead end because they'd been fine. A part of the story that I found really cool is, as I mentioned, Brian really loved Pearl Jam. I mean, so much to get a tattoo, that's dedication. Um, The year Brian went missing, there was a Pearl Jam concert in Cincinnati. And actually, Alexis and Brian were supposed to go to that concert. And she didn't go, um, obviously, because it would have been very upsetting. Uh, But the lead singer, Eddie Vedder, took time in between songs to ask for tips in Schaefer's disappearance. Um, No leads came from that, but I think that's really cool that his favorite band try to get leads on the case. I just It kind of comes full circle. Um, in August, a lead was released on the news that police were looking for a man in an orange sweater who had been acting a little suspiciously. He was entering and exiting the bar multiple times and was caught on camera. Uh, that man came forward almost immediately and went to the police. <laughs> he said that he was at the bar looking for his friend who was supposed to give him a ride home and that he had absolutely nothing to do with Brian's disappearance. It turns out his story was true. And yet another lead had no traction for the case. In fact, after endlessly watching the footage from the evening, police were able to track down and accounted for every single person who came up that escalator and were tracking who also went down that escalator. Out of everybody that evening in that time frame who came up and went down, there was only one person who came up and didn't go down, and that was Brian Schaefer. Alexis had been calling Brian's cell phone every single night before bed since he disappeared. His phone bill had still been paid and just in case he needed it. So I think Alexis and Randy were paying the phone bill just to kind of keep it going, you know, in case he still had a cell phone to call. Because um, his cell phone had never been recovered. It still hasn't been recovered. 
On September 8th, Alexis called and the phone rang. The phone rang a few times, then go to voicemail. She got her brother to call and it rang for him, too. Several people, including the police and Randy, called the phone and it rang. The following morning, it wasn't ringing anymore. Alexis had access to Brian's phone records and there was no activity. There was also no activity on any of his accounts, MySpace credit card, or otherwise. The cell phone ringing fiasco was addressed by his phone carrier to be a glitch in the system. The phone pinged off a cell tower in Hilliard, Ohio, which is northwest of Columbus. The cell phone provider said that it didn't mean much and that it didn't mean his phone was in the area. And this is a topic of hot debate. If you want to get into it, if you want to go down a rabbit hole of like just immense proportions, look up that aspect of this case because there's a lot of people who believe that his cell phone was actually active despite what the cell phone carrier said. Uh, 2008 brought Hurricane Ike to the United States with hurricane force winds plaguing the Midwest, actually. Um, So the areas of like Ohio, Illinois, Midwest. (laughs) Um, 196 people were killed in the landlocked states. And on September 14th, Randy Schaefer was one of them. Friends believe he was trying to clean up yard debris when a huge gust of wind caused a large limb from a tree to be hurled in his direction. He was killed on impact and was found by his neighbors the next morning. He was only 55 years old. And that's pretty upsetting that he um, he passed away without ever knowing what happened to his son. And there's a ton of people who believe, you know, in heaven and in the afterlife. And they, they hope that he finally found peace because hopefully in the afterlife. He was either reunited with Brian or learned through, I don't know, the, the powers that be what happened to his son. Within weeks of Randy's death, uh, though, the detectives uncovered two clues in Brian's case. One was a posting on Randy's memorial website, which this is so messed up, but it says, I miss you, Dad. Love, Brian. The writer listed the Virgin Islands as his home. There was another third-party tip claiming Brian's body could be found in a field near a freeway and just outside the city, which was probably another damn psychic telling him. These psychics... From reading what they did, they were pretty much leading Brian, or not Brian, sorry, Randy all over the place, like having him look at all these places. And of course, Brian was never found in any of these places, but you just have this poor man dredging rivers and almost drowning and, you know, just for nothing. It's disgusting. Uh, So with no evidence to dismiss either possibility, detectives investigated both. Um, In the end, neither lead led to anything. The posting turned out to be a hoax written by a public computer in Columbus, and the canine search into the field turned up nothing. Brian's brother Derek stated that it was disgusting that someone would pull a prank like that, and I fully agree. That is pretty fucked up. The identity of the center was never released was never released to the public if it was ever found. And just in case there was any substance to it, the police in the Virgin Islands were given information about Brian's case and news about his disappearance was aired to the local networks. It was brought up um, in a more recent interview where Dan stated that, which Dan was his cousin, by the way, that Brian may have had a drug problem, which may have been involved or led to his disappearance. But most people believe this. um, They don't believe this is true. So where does that leave Brian? missing <laughs> no body no evidence just gone into thin air time has moved on without him alexis has moved on rightfully so and is now married and living in toledo with her husband and two children the ugly tuna saluna closed down in 2018 i heard that Derek is also married and living his best life um to the best visibility anyways kind of minding his own business and trying to keep his head down 
Um, when he disappeared, Brian was wearing a yellow cancer awareness bracelet in honor of his mother. To this day, um, Derek still wears a green missing persons bracelet to honor Brian. Um, so this case was actually covered pretty recently on Investigation Discovery. Um, and in this case, Alexis was notably absent. I guess her pictures were blurred out. Um, and it seems that she kind of finally is putting this behind her. Um, there's a facet of this case that I'm choosing not to cover, uh, just because I personally don't feel that it has any relevancy to the case at all. Um, there is a faction of people out there who believe that the famous smiley face killer had something to do with Brian's disappearance, but nothing about this points to something like that. I think bringing it up convolutes the information more than it needs to be because it doesn't seem to be realistic. Also, I've said it before, there's a danger to looping people into other unsolved cases. There's a ton of people out there that, for example, are attributed to Henry Lee Lucas. And now we're finding out that that, that is not the case. Um, he is not responsible for some of these deaths attributed to him, either through DNA evidence or, you know, physical locations, that these were not physically possible for him to be attributed to these cases, but he was just, people were just lumping it in that whenever they found a person who was deceased mysteriously, ended up on Henry Lee Lucas's rap sheet. Um, that also means, though, that effectively there are people out there murdering other people who aren't even accounted for and that police and detectives aren't even looking for because it's been attributed to this other person. Cool, close the case, call it a day. I don't believe in that. I don't think that's fair because then I don't think that person's ever going to get the justice that they deserve because all you're saying, oh, just this guy. It's not always that guy. We're learning that right now with Henry Lee Lucas. There are, there are cases that it, it is physically impossible from distance, like the time between people that we know that are attributed to him, they're, that are without a doubt his victims, there's not even physically enough time for him to drive from point A to point B, and these cases are being attributed to him. And so we're, we're, that was one of my efforts before I took my hiatus was to figure out those cases that could not be his because it's ridiculous that people are lumping these in. But I, I am so firmly against that. I, I think you really need to have some concrete evidence to really lump these together. And I don't think Brian was killed by a serial killer. I, I don't believe that to be the case. I don't think that's the case at all. And honestly, I don't know how to feel at the end of this. Um, I feel like it's possible Cliff knows a valid piece of information, uh, but I don't, I don't think he had anything to do directly with Brian's disappearance. Um, maybe Cliff knew Brian was leaving. I don't know why he'd be leery of taking a polygraph test other than he knew it would ruin his career if he did. If anything came up, I mean, I think the media attention, this is, this was internationally known. I think the media attention of him failing a polygraph, like just to keep himself and lay low out of the case is probably the smartest thing he could do because if anything came up, I mean, that would cost him his whole reputation. So I see his, his leniency on doing that. Um, maybe Brian was over it and decided to start a new life. It's unlikely, but possible. I mean, it, the grief maybe it was just too much maybe he decided he was in a, a career path that he didn't want to be in and he just decided to you know screw it I'm gonna go live on a beach I've said I was gonna do that a million times you know how how easy it'd be to just relocate and disappear off the earth I mean you can do it and once again it's not illegal to do that I mean or maybe he really did wander off and meet his demise I mean there's no hard evidence to suggest that but at this point it's possible I just find it hard to believe that a person could vanish on the OSU campus without anyone noticing, um, especially on the first night of spring break. 
I've been to OSU on a random Friday night and the bars, the streets, the walkways are packed. It is a full house. It's a madhouse. And I feel like if there were a person in distress, someone would have remembered it. Um, because while people are drinking, there are designated drivers, there are employees, there are bartenders, bus drivers, taxi drivers, Uber drivers who would notice somebody in distress on the street. But if somebody were trying to not be seen, now that could be pretty easy. Um, One small positive that came out of the case is that thanks to the Schaefer family and other families of missing OSU and adult students in the area, they lobbied to get a bill passed about the protocol for missing person cases. Um, So one part that I kind of left out about this story was that um, Randy Schaefer was very upset with the fact that a lot of information was not shared with him and a lot of information was not communicated very well between different police departments. So Columbus is pretty huge and, you know, the areas around that are pretty huge. And these these places were not communicating, were were not communicating very well with each other um, and not very well with the family at all. And I think a lot of the families were upset about that, too, because they felt had the information been communicated better, you know, maybe basically the lack of communication caused detriment to the case where like somebody could have known something or found out something, but they didn't because of lack of communication. So that bill has since become a law. And now the way police departments handle these cases has been changed, hopefully for the better. And with that, um, I'm going to close out this episode, but I will leave you with the fact that the Charlie project exists and remind you that Brian Schaefer's case is still very much open Um, police are still looking for leads. So Brian Randall Schaefer disappeared around 2 a.m. on April 1st, 2006 from the Ugly Tuna Saluna in Columbus, Ohio. He is a white male who is about six foot two and at the time of his disappearance weighed about 160 to 165 pounds. He has hazel eyes, he had brown hair, and a Pearl Jam tattoo on his right bicep. He was last seen wearing a light green polo over a white long sleeve shirt and dark blue jeans. He was wearing a yellow cancer awareness bracelet. Brian would be 44 years old today. And if you have any information, please call the Columbus Police Department at 877-645-8477. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope maybe something comes from it. Who knows? But with that, I'll see you next week.